The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour from Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, Argentina. It has made Malbec its own and it's crafting a reputation for the most innovative altitude winemaking in the world. My guest today is Master of Wine Madeleine Stenreth, international winemaking consultant. We'll talk about what makes Argentina so special and we'll hear about her latest project, Bemberg, and the La Linterna wines that are micro terroir specific. Plus, as ever, we'll have medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Argentina is arguably the most significant wine producer in South America, certainly the biggest, uh, with almost a quarter of its wines exported. We know it best, of course, for Malbec, a grape that has come to define Argentina, even though its origins are in Bordeaux. Uh, but the country is also rapidly winning acclaim for altitude winemaking, creating wines that are now traded alongside the world's finest cuvées from the likes of Bordeaux or Burgundy or Barolo, you name it, Napa maybe. Madeleine Stenreth is a master of wine, an international consultant on winemaking who knows Argentina better than most of us, not least because she chose altitude winemaking for her MW research paper. That's the crucial third element of the MW programme after theory and tasting for those enduring that uh, gruelling experience. Um, she won the Quinta Noval Award for her dissertation. Uh, her most recent project, uh, working with acclaimed winemaker Daniel P, is with Bemberg Estate Wines. And she's here to talk about uh, that a little bit later on, as well as her great knowledge and affection for uh, Argentina. Um, it's a great pleasure to have you on the drinking hour, Madeline. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big, broad question, first of all, uh, to kick us off. Um, what makes you love Argentina? Oh, it's a big question. But my first visit there was about 20, 22 years ago. And I was uh, actually blown away by, first of all, the effect of the Andes Mountains. And, you know, when you're standing in the vineyards and you're looking straight into the snow and you're you're realizing the effect of that ice box uh, and the effect it has on viticulture and also the effect on the wines but i think my my biggest eye-opening um, event was probably when i was a buyer for argentina for the swedish monopoly and i had passed my master of wine exams and i was going to choose the topic for for my dissertation and I was thinking, why are these wines? I had traveled from the Cafajata up in the north of Salta all the way down to Patagonia, and I could not get my head around Malbec. I couldn't understand why this variety was so incredibly different wherever I went. But of course, you have this north to south, This long, it's like such a long distance, but I couldn't understand Malbec. And I thought that was actually quite thrilling <laughs> to be able to, um, to understand uh, the effect of the altitude and the effect of, uh, of those Andes mountains. And then I think the other 
thing that really uh, made me passionate about Argentina was that the the people were so um, so incredibly surprised with having um, having someone from coming from Sweden wanting to do research on their country and wanting to dig down so deep into something that they didn't none of none of the people there had done it before <laughs> so they you know open arms and really um, were so happy and so proud that i was giving them this attention that i was treated you know when you feel like they they really appreciate everything uh, that you're trying to do and they help you with everything they can in order to make this a success and I was just blown about uh, blown away by the people I must say also that was a long answer to your first question <laughs> that's okay um, it's yeah. a good answer it was a big question um, yeah. you are I think one of two masters of wine from Sweden is that right well, the thing is, we're actually three of us now. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, but I'm I'm the only lady. But you know, right. when the masters of wine, when you're a man and you become a master of wine, no one says you're going to be the first master of wine. But I was the first, I was the first woman master of wine. So that's something we're very few. Um, Norway's got a few more, and Finland's got a few more. But Sweden, yeah, we're three, and the other two have been busy uh, with a monopoly uh, for 15 years and I've been the only one who's been you know active out in the world uh, more on a freelancing basis and I just love it I couldn't mm. be stuck in one place like they have <laughs> I'm going to ask you how you got into wine but before I do that I just want uh, for those listening who who don't understand what we mean by monopoly um just mm. explain um in, in in sort of very simple terms what um monopoly means uh, in terms of wine because it's rather different to the way the the wine market works in this country yeah no there's if you're a consumer there's only one there's no like choice of where to go and buy your wines there's only one store so it's actually a retailing monopoly um the monopoly can buy from um all the different importers but they can't buy straight from a producer so the monopoly has buyers that are in charge of being in contact with all the importers and then the producers um they send their wines um, to tenders. So the tender system is all blind tasting and the wine wins on, on points in blind tasting. So you can't choose brands, you can't, you know, it's like, it's, it's, um, it's supposed to be very brand neutral. And it's, uh, it's a way to also, I think for Sweden, to get away from the EU coming in to say, hey, you, you, can't, <laughs> you can't just have, um, you can't, can't just choose to buy from this and that. Um, they they um, they really want to make sure it's a neutral system that no one pays their way in or you know put big marketing budgets behind the launch. And so you would not find wines in supermarkets. And there's only there are like 520 stores across the country, and those are all belong to the same store chain, and this is owned by the by the state. So it's state-controlled wow. retailing monopoly, yeah. Order. Yeah, very interesting, very different. Mm. And tell us how you got into wine, because Sweden is not renowned for making wine, of course. No, but you, I can tell you, there are actually quite a few producers of wine down in the south of Sweden nowadays, which is really? quite extraordinary. And I always link it 
back to saying, look at England 25 years ago, a lot of people laughed at the wines and said, ah, oh, come on, England. But now <laughs> the wines from England are seen as very, very high class all over the world. And I think maybe one day Sweden could impress with a few wines. And they're getting there slowly, slowly, slowly. But I got into wine because my parents were running restaurant and hotel. And I was I was working there from when I was very young, you know, cleaning rooms and washing dishes and doing the hard work. Um, but then realizing that I thought it was quite interesting with that work in the restaurant and with guests. And then one when I was a head waiter as like 18 year old, um, and I was asked by a guest to recommend a wine who he asked me a question and it was a wine from Bulgaria, Cabernet Sauvignon. And I couldn't understand how to explain that to him because I didn't know anything about wine. And you know, Sweden at that time had very, very little wine being sold all over the country. Um, people were drinking beers with their dinners. They had snaps and they were more like, you know, gin tonic and vodka Russian for aperitif. And it was not very whiny. Um, and I'm not that old. <laughs> but this was like, um, I started studying to become a sommelier in 1990. And it was the selection of wines was very, very, very limited. Uh, but that was the route. I actually got embarrassed by this question that I couldn't answer. So I went and bought a book. <laughs> and then I started reading. I thought, this is very interesting. And then I, I went on a year around the world trip uh, with backpack with a good friend. And I just wanted to stop at all the places they made wine. And I just fell in love <laughs> oh. with the wine. Yeah. And the places because the wine areas of the world are the most beautiful places in the world, I think. Oh, well, I'm definitely going to uh, discover some Swedish wine at some point soon because yeah. I have uh, never um, tasted Swedish wine. So that that's a but anyway, that that's a diversion. That's mm, uh, for me to do. Definitely. Because let's yep. talk um, Argentina, because you you mentioned why you chose uh, to uh, write your uh, dissertation for the MW programme for which you got that uh, Quinta Nerval award. Mm. Um, what did you conclude then in, in sort of in simple terms or as simple as you can for, for people who are not MWs themselves? What is the link between altitude and uh, delicious Malbec? Well, the thing is, I had to limit myself to a smaller region. Uh, I couldn't do all of Argentina. But <clears throat> if you think of Argentina in the north, uh, you will find vineyards that are up at 3000 meters above sea level. So it would have been very interesting to actually compare the absolute north with the vineyards down in the south in Patagonia, which would be reaching maybe 300 meters. But that would have been too much of a you know that the, you need to have less variables. So I limited myself to Mendoza. And in Mendoza, you have vineyards reaching around 700 meters. And then the highest ones are around 1500 meters. So of course, that's going to make a huge difference uh, in climate and temperature. I would say the key to everything is um, the length of the growing season. Because if you have warm if you're in the lower altitude, you will have hot days and you will have uh, not very cold nights. You will have warmish nights. And with that lower difference between day and nighttime temperature, you get less aromatics, you, less, you get less quality tannin and you'll get less color. And if you move toward a, uh, towards a higher altitude, you will naturally get cooler days and you will get cooler nights. 
So you will not have that incredible heat, but you will still have a big difference between a nighttime and daytime temperature. And it's quite interesting that that difference between day and night uh, can sometimes reach up to 20 plus degrees in between day and night in the, in the normal ripening season. And that makes these aromatics just explode in the in the grape. So you get high perfume, high aromatics, lots of intensity of fruit, but also because of that uh, lower temperature um, in the day and lower temperature at night, you will also have a, a longer ripening season. So the tannins, they have time to actually soften and polymerize on the vine. So you will get a lot of tannin, but they will be softer. So it's not like you say that you get a flabby wine, but you get tannins that are a lot of them, but they all have a silky cover. And that has been the key, I think, to Malbec's success in the world, is that they are highly charismatic, but they're also very soft because people, most people don't want to drink astringent wines because then you have to keep them for a long time to actually have them soften, you know? So uh, I find, I think this is, the finding um, was that I couldn't focus only on quality because quality, um, it was more based on style. Mm. So the higher we went in terms of altitude, we got uh, more floral notes, more violets, more freshness, uh, a lower pH, which then would naturally uh, respond, or how do you say, relate to uh, higher acidity. And you will get more tannin, but higher quality tannin and more, more polymerized. So the higher, the better was not really the key for the, for the dissertation, but uh, the higher in altitude, the more interesting in aromatics, the fresher, the less need for adding acidity to the, to the wines. And you know, that longer ripening season gave much more interest to the, to the layers in the wine. I tend to sort of find the wines fresher brighter which is exactly yeah. what you're you're saying yeah. um, what mm. about the quality of the sunshine when you're um up in the andes because if you've been there you know on holiday um uh if you've been there working whatever <clears throat> uh, the, the sun feels different it feels powerful um it feels somehow kind of the light is different it's brighter the the blues mm. are, are purer. Um, is that yeah. um, ultraviolet radiation sort of having an effect on the on the grapes at altitude in a in a different way than it would lower down as well? Yeah, definitely. And also, if you think of Mendoza, it's a desert climate, so you don't have a lot of cloud cover. Um, when you go further north uh, into Cafayate, then you will have naturally more cloud cover. But in Mendoza, it's like the sunshine is so intense. And what happens with that ultraviolet intensity, that creates, um, it's like for us in the summer, we are, <laughs> we have this browner, browner skin because we have been exposed to the sunshine. So we don't burn as easily. But if we would be, it's like the, the thickness of the skins of the grapes, um, the, the ultraviolet light creates that um, that the, the vines they the grapes create a protectional layer in the skin to protect the little seeds so therefore it's like they build up uh, the thickness of the skin and therefore you get so much more polyphenol so when i say more tannin and more ripeness of tannin it also gives you a lot more color and the argentines are so proud of their color 
in their Malbecs because they see this as a quality quality statement. Um, but you know, if you look at the the way uh, winemakers today extract their wines, they extract a little bit less today because they want more elegance and more freshness. But Malbec is still so thankful uh, to use because it, it does have that incredible intensity of color. And that is very much due to the ultraviolet light. So at altitude, if you go up to 1500 meters, it will definitely burn you much quicker than if you're at 800 meters further down in the city. Let's talk about uh, Malbec's rather fascinating history, because um, if you ask someone in the UK wine market um, where Malbec comes from, I bet you they're going to say Argentina. Um, mm. But of course, its origins are uh, French, I, I think, yeah. uh, in, in mm. Bordeaux. So just tell, talk us through the, the kind of history of Malbec and how it became so important uh, for Argentina. Well, the thing is, it was very, very important in Bordeaux as well. Um, like before Phylloxera around that 1850, it was one of the most planted varieties. Uh, but after Phylloxera, it wasn't that popular to replant because it did have issues with humidity and everything. Um, and then Caor, of course, as well had the Malbec and was very famous for that very black and inky um, wine um, but it came over to argentina about 1850 so it came over before the phylloxera and because coming over before phylloxera it came over because um, it was before the uh, it needed to be grafted onto the american rootstock so when the french were going to replant malbec it didn't respond that well to the to the grafting so therefore they just deserted it a bit and went more for for merlot and for cabernet uh, but the argentines they managed to get this variety to argentina before it had gone through the the process of being grafted so therefore they can say that they have the original malbec planted in argentina because it comes as it is you know not having to be to be uh, treated as we treat clones and you know production of, of various clones so it's the original malbec and most of the vineyards that you will find in Argentina, they are planted um, like on their own roots. So you will have vineyards that are from the 1920s, 1930s, all own rooted uh, vineyards. And um, it's it's all the original cuttings. They are taking, you know, like Massal selection. They take uh, cuttings from great vineyards and then they just plant them. So there's no specific clones really used in Argentina for Malbec. It's all most of it are propagated from from Marcel selected vines from vineyards that they know has they've always um, delivered really well so it's quite unique i must say no one else really has these malbec vines that did come over um before the phylloxera hit so i find that it's almost like you would say it's the their own variety because if you look around the world with Malbec, most of it are are planted, they are cot, and cot would be then the clone of Malbec. But cot, if you take in cot and plant it in Argentina, you will have much bigger bunches, you will have less color, less concentration, and they are never, never as interesting. And it's the same in Chile, even if they try to plant quite a lot of Malbec in order to see that, you know, they could also be successful with, with Malbec because their neighbor did so well. Uh, but they planted the cot and the cot 
did not respond as well. So I, I think they're sitting on a, a very unique, a very unique variety that no one really else can can copy. Mm. So Cot is a clone of Malbec. And that's yeah. uh, the Cot that we see where we do see it um, in places like Cahor. Mm. That's what I would say. Yes. Wow, that's really fascinating. I can see why you were so interested in exploring uh, Malbec and uh, mm. an altitude for your uh, uh, research paper. Uh, tell us then about uh, Bemberg Estate and uh, a bit about the history, but also um, your involvement there. Yes, so when I did my dissertation, it was on the 2007 vintage, and I was a buyer then um, for South America and for Argentina specifically, together with South Africa, for the Monopoly. And uh, I came over to uh, to meet up with, for example, Daniel P, who is the, the, the key man behind Bemberg. Um, and I asked him, uh, could you consider helping me if I would do my dissertation on Malbec? And he said, I would love to. So he did 20 single vineyard ferments out of my 100 samples. And I, I was using, I actually got the support from 27 different wineries. But Daniel offered me 20 different single vineyards, different altitudes. And he did like 500 kilo uh, bins of each of these altitudes. And I was so blown away by, by the work that he did. And then also, you know, the, the research work that I did to try to understand why is this wine different from this one? And just to try to understand what is really the key behind all these differences. And then he saw um, my strength in what I was doing and the passion that I had for Argentina and also all my questions, because I think Argentina is so, uh, it's it's not understood enough. And I think it's a, it's a re one of the reasons is actually that they are not very good communicators about what they're doing, because Argentina is such a big country and, and they know it so well themselves, but they think that we know it as well. So when they're talking about their regions and their places, uh, they take for granted that we know exactly where Altamira is and where Hualtalari is and where the, you know, the, the Chagnard Punco vineyard up in Catamarca. And so I, I started to, to question um, quite a lot when it came to uh, understanding and communicating Argentina. So I started doing some masterclasses and, you know, helping to, to spread the message. And then when we were doing tastings, Daniel P was was wanting to use my my knowledge and and you know as a sounding board because I was also tasting wines all over the world and judging and and working so globally. And I, at one stage uh, he asked if I would want to be interested to come and work with a technical team and be a their sounding board, helping with their blends and be you know the how would you say to have your ear on the ground or uh, I'm Swedish so you have to help me sometimes <laughs> with the way I explain things but if you understand what I mean with yes, uh, yes. wanting yeah, to be the like the global palette to mm. because winemakers all over the world very often when they travel they they travel and they taste their own wines they show their own wine, wines they do um, wine dinners, they stand at wine fairs and they always present their own wines. So they don't get the exposure to the world in the same way. And I think it's an incredible strength um, for a team of winemakers to bring someone in from the outside to actually be a little bit of a devil's advocate, to be a little pain in the ass. <laughs> the one who's like 
saying, I don't think this is really interesting enough, or I think we can do it like this instead. And, you know, helping them to, to open their eyes to something they don't see because they, they work so much in their own little world that they lose out on the world. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you're a, a sounding board uh, or a barometer um, of uh, to, to give them a kind of global perspective. I think that's really important, but it also yeah. shows great um, openness and foresight, actually, on their mm. part for yeah. realising that um, they, they need to, to think about all of the world's wines rather than yeah. uh, than just uh, uh, their own. Um, yeah. so, and so, also in blending. I do a lot of blending together. Well, you're a renowned so. expert in blending. Mm. So, so for those listening who aren't winemakers but do love wine, and that's where our audience is, I think, um, yeah. just, uh, just tell us um, why blending is so important. Yeah, blending is, is uh, I mean, every wine is a blend, actually, if you think of it, because either it's a blend of barrels, if it's a very small quantity of wine, or it's a, it's a blend of vineyards. If you have your own estate and you have an east-facing site and then you have a west-facing site, and, and then maybe if it's all the same variety, you will still blend these different batches of wine into something. And if you take equal amounts of everything and blend it together, then... This is the wine you will have every year and some wineries work like that but then there could be those that want to have a you know maybe bring another variety in to bring to lift the strength for example with with malbec it's interesting to actually look at bringing in maybe a cabernet uh, bring in a little bit of cabernet franc like we've done in, in some of the in the wines that we've been working with to see how can we make malbec a little bit more linear age worthy maybe bring it up the the amount of black fruited graphitey graveliness and you know lift lifts its strengths uh, so in terms of blending i think you can you can you can take all the barrels in your cellar and just blend it together and say this is what we have but maybe one of the barrels or two of the barrels are really outstanding and maybe another barrel or two barrels or a tank is maybe not showing that well that year and maybe in order to go towards that quality level where you want to go maybe you just have to accept that that uh, section of your cellar or that barrel or that tank uh, shouldn't really be included into this blend because the way you're going style-wise or what the vintage has given you in, in terms of style uh, might not need that section or that part of the, uh, of the wine that year. So you can, uh, it's also in terms of being a classic producer, being a traditional, like even more uh, classic plus traditional or if you would think that you're maybe one of the more innovative and you're wanting to show a bit of a modern edge then then you know some some parts of your vineyards maybe is not suited to be part of that blend if you want to show your edge of of being a little bit more innovative or you maybe need to pick a little earlier in order to bring the perfume of a certain section of that vineyard that has potential but it's been treated the same way year in, year out. And so there's thousands of variables, which I think is so amazing. It's like when a painter gets his, his palette and, you know, 
just create something from scratch. Um, yeah, you can look. Yeah, you can look at a or wine a cook and say as well. Yeah, like a exactly. Cook making an amazing yeah. dish. Yeah, I, I've um, I, what, some of the, the the stuff I've enjoyed the most when I've been as a journalist when I've been uh, visiting a region or going to a masterclass is doing my own blending where it's a bit of a faff for the person hosting the masterclass because you obviously yeah. have to have a, a load of different samples and then um, and, and then you kind of make your own blend and it's it's quite a slow process as well but it's absolutely mm. fascinating. I love it. I don't yeah. think I'm especially good at it. I have to confess, uh, but uh, but maybe uh, with a bit more practice, I, I, I would be. But it's some, true to say that it's as much about what you leave out as as what you put in, isn't it? Yeah, and at the same time, you have to see all these components because I always call them components because if you get if you have fifty samples uh, sample bottles in front of you that come from different tanks and different barrels and maybe a large foudre and then a concrete tank and then a small new barrel and then there's something toast barrel with a high toast and a and a barrel with no toast and you have all these components and then you can see how one of the components can actually pick up this other component in a fabulous way and actually drive the blend towards a direction where you think this could be a unique little tweak of that wine for that vintage that will make it stand out in any blind tasting in you know when when you're sitting with that wine in front of you you put your nose into it you go wow so suddenly you can bring out personality and charismatic characters in a wine because you've identifying those components in the cellar that can give you that little tweak and sometimes half a percent of a blend can kick a wine into an absolutely amazing direction. And I think a lot of winemakers, they don't take the time because they have so much work to do and they have so many wines that needs to be bottled and blended. And so if they would put all their attention uh, in that at that level into each wine going into the bottle, they would probably not do much else than that. <laughs> But if you can pick out those wines that now Danielle has done uh, for, for the top range of the Bemberg wines, I mean, that's only the, the top little lots, the, the small sections of the vineyards. So it's only, only the best components that, that must go in, in, into the blends. And it's, it's amazing to see that sometimes you can take one barrel that will be just one and a half percent of a blend and it just makes it absolutely magic and i i love that part of the work it's like creating a, a new personality giving birth to a new baby every time mm. alchemy i suppose yeah no it yeah. sounds fascinating so let's talk about the project you've been involved with uh with daniel p uh, the chief winemaker who uh, was named uh, argentinian winemaker of the year by tim mm. atkin mw uh, relatively recently, uh, I think. Um, a fascinating yeah. project. This is a, a micro terroir uh, kind of project. Um, I've been tasting uh, three of the wines earlier today. Uh, La Linterna is this uh, uh, project uh, name uh, from Benberg. Mm. Um, just explain a bit about what you're trying to do with the La Linterna wines. Well, the thing is, the, the whole range is it's the family Bemberg, um, the Bemberg estate wines is owned by the, the family Bemberg, who is the owners of the Grupo Peñaflor. And Grupo Peñaflor is the biggest wine company in, in Argentina. And they export about 25% of everything that leaves the country. So they're a big exporter and a big producer. 
um, but they have vineyards, which is very unique uh, in Argentina. All the other, I would say, top brands uh, or the the real like the the greatest wines made by the greatest producer, they would focus on one small area, and then they will be focusing all their uh, energy or or injecting all their energy in that place. Where the Bemberg family has vineyards within that group from the absolute north up in Salta in Catamarca uh, through to Pedernal Valley in the San Juan province. So it's all in different provinces. They have vineyards on the on the Buenos Aires coast, south of the city of Buenos Aires, uh, seven kilometers from the ocean, uh, which is amazing for like Albariño and Arsurtico and very very unusual to think of Argentina on the on the Atlantic coast and then all over Mendoza from from uh, the Luján de Cuyo which is the classic area to all across Uco Valley which is also Mendoza but further south and closer to the uh, to the mountains and then uh, also further south in Patagonia so the whole project started with the family wanting to, because there are so many family members spread all over the world, and they they're living in Spain and France and London and all all across um, the U.S. and as well. And they said we would like to one day have our own wine that we can drink when we come come together and that we can have in in restaurants where all over the world and and then that idea um, was was um, it how do you say it from an idea to reality um, and they bought this incredible site in Hualtalari which is the the highest part of the northern Uco Valley, which is then as close as we get to the Andes at around 1,250 meters above sea level. Um, so they bought a property there with incredible soils and built a winery. And so from 2000, and I think 18 is the first vintage that was produced in this incredible uh, place. But mm. before then, they had they they decided to bring a little a little section of each of the best vineyards from all across Argentina into this La Linterna range. So micro terroir um, wines that are supposed to show the best of each of these um, of these places across the country. And so Hualtalari is the place where Chardonnay is absolute rock star together with Malbec and some beautiful Cabernet Franc and Cabernet Sauvignon as well. So that is like the home of the Bemberg family estate wines now. But also um, these other um, these other vineyards that represent Malbecs from from a place called Chanyal Punco, which is like a thousand kilometers north. <laughs> and it's it's like that site shows a totally, totally different style, of course, than the most southern uh, vineyard in Uco Valley, which is called La Consulta. So they they said, why don't we show Malbec from all over the country bottled under the, the Bemberg Estate family wines and, and just show the diversity of the variety and also included saying we want a Cabernet as well. Where is the best Cabernet? And the most characterful and interesting Cabernet um, that was within the portfolio was found in a 1958 planting in uh, in Cavajate, way up north, about eight, I think, 800 kilometers away from from Mendoza. So it's quite it's quite dramatically different. Um, 
through through the range, you will find incredible differences, which they thought was the greatness of being able to have such a range of vineyards and, and have the possibility to show the best from Argentina in different bottlings. So La Linterna is therefore a, a showcase of what the Argentina is uh, capable of uh, within the same family ownership. It's great to see um, a mighty beast of a wine uh, producing company uh, with, you know, um, you know, must be tens of thousands of hectares, I, I guess, uh, doing these sort of uh, micro terroir uh, wines under its uh, family name. I, I think that's a, a really lovely idea. And if we take some mm. of the wines individually, so you mentioned um, uh, Cafayate uh, there yeah. in uh, Salta. Uh, some people will be familiar with Salta from holidays. It's beautiful, northern yeah. Argentina, uh, wonderful altitude uh, wines. I, I, I had a wine, I think, from the highest vineyard um, on the planet. Let's start with uh, a really delicious, sort of herbaceously crunchy uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, is it the altitude that's uh, the greatest influence on that lovely kind of crunchy freshness and varietal character? Well, the thing is a combination because the altitude in that area is about 1,700 metres. And the thing is, with if you compare with, um, with another site, which is about an hour south, which is at 2,000 metres, they have a totally different climate. Cafayate gets a little bit more cloud cover and it's also protected because there are mountains on two sides. So they get a bit of shading, which is very positive for this area that they don't get the extreme sun intensity from morning till evening. So the shading of those two mountain ranges make, uh, makes a big difference. But also if you think of how did they plant in 1958 when, the, uh, when these vineyards were planted, they, they were all planted according to the pergola system because pergola is the best way to protect the grapes from, from being sunburned. Because if you think that even if you have a little bit of cloud cover in this area, you do have intense sunshine. And as the higher you go, that sunlight intensity will just be too strong. So if you think of that pergola system having a filtering effect, in the past there's been a lot of work with Cabernet because it's, it, you know, in the, in the DNA of the variety, there is herbaceousness and there is like a crunchy green character that in the past 15, 20 years, there's been so many winemakers all over the world wanting to get rid of the herbaceous character in Cabernet because it hasn't been it hasn't been fashionable enough. Everyone wants long hang time, big, svelte, broad-shouldered <laughs> Cabernet type uh, wines that are like 15% alcohol or higher and lots of new oak and just trying to get rid of that DNA which I find so beautiful. And in Cafajate, in these pergola systems, they can they can filter the sunlight in to not burn the grapes but to make sure they get enough sunlight intensity but that also uh, makes um, makes it possible for the grape to maintain a little bit of that natural lifted aromatic herbaceous note that is is very characterful of Cabernet from this north um, part of the country so that aromatic crunchiness that you're talking about that is so much part of both that old vine viticulture and also the altitude naturally as well mm. and the malbec 
wines. It being Malbec, um, uh, a, a grape that uh, we associate with Argentina, as we were discussing earlier on, you have one, two, three, four, yeah, a, a number of different Malbec wines within yeah. this La Linterna uh, range. And they are all representing uh, specific sort of micro plots, specific yeah. terroirs. They are all representing uh, like a section of a vineyard. So for example, this Cabernet, it comes from a small little, they call it parcella. So it's like a small little section of a vineyard where they have seen year in and year out, that section of the vineyard always gives you the, the most characterful wine. So that is the strength of this whole La Linterna range is that it's not just the representative of that subregion, it's a representative of a single vineyard, but a part within that single vineyard that has shown uh, extremely um, good qualities all the way through. So, so it's like picking the cherries, <laughs> which is a good. What a beautiful thing to be able to go in and just pick the beautiful cherries, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's a, a lovely um, taste sort of descriptor, sort of evocative one for those particular uh, wines. Um, let's let's talk about the Chardonnay. You mentioned that it's kind of Chardonnay heaven, Gualtallery, uh, yep. this uh, high altitude vineyard area in the, the foothills of uh, the, the Andes above Mendoza. And the Chardonnay has this incredible energy to it. There's an incredible sort of vibrancy to the kind of citrus stone fruit character. It's got a lovely kind of zip to it. Uh, that is, again, um, that's your altitude influence uh, in the Chardonnay there, is it? It is, definitely. But also, this there are a few parts of Argentina that has a very high percentage of calcium carbonate in the soil. And it's like it's not like the like in Burgundy that you will find the mother rock of solid limestone uh, and then soil above it. This is like this is in the soil and calcium carbonate is very characterful. First of all, it stresses the vine a little bit, but in a good way. So it's like a positive stress. Unless you have too much calcium carbonate, then it will become toxic for the for the vines. But at this level, if you think of Andean, the Andean mountains having erupted from the ocean, they, they do have a lot of fossil, uh, fossils in, in the soil. And all this soil is decomposed from, from the Andean mountains. And, and some parts have come like uh, from from rivers and streams down from the mountains and then carrying soil from from the Andes. But this particular site or the Hualtalari area has a very, very high percentage of these stones that are just full of, of uh, white powder. And that white powder is that chalk. So if you just, you know, you touch your finger on that and then put it in your mouth, you you really sense that chalkiness, like if you were in school and you could see your teacher was standing there with a with a with a chalk uh, and and writing on the blackboard. It's the same effect it has on your palate. So it gives you like a fat fatness, but not fat as in oily and heavy, but with a powder like a chalk powder with a with a, a bit of a fat texture. And that is something that I find very interesting. That in the Malbecs in this vineyard and in the Chardonnays in this vineyard. You can you can sense the chalky character in the tannins of the Malbec and you can feel it somehow in that texture in the Chardonnay as well. I don't know how to explain why and how, but it really uh, makes a huge difference. And it also gives the possibility for the soil to to um, uh, to main for the for the vines to maintain 
higher freshness and lower pH. So it's, it's just a, a magical inclusion in the soil. So the soil type, I would say, is crucial. And if I just go back to the year when I did my dissertation in 07, no one really talked about soil. They all talked about the effect of altitude being the thing. But you can be in areas where there's lower altitude and, and more interesting soil, and that can really give amazing wines as well. So higher doesn't always mean better, but, but the soil type is now everything they talk about because they've realized that now they're starting to understand the soil they have. Before they didn't do that, then it was all about the, the meter above sea level and the altitude race. Everyone was competing on, on being higher. And now it's more talking about who has the highest amount of calcium carbonate in the soil, which is quite an interesting change in just 15 years. Yeah, what you say there about you know, higher doesn't necessarily mean better does go against the kind of the grain, I suppose, of, of what we've come to understand about wines from Argentina. And you mentioned mm. um, Patagonia, uh, much closer to the sea, uh, much lower down, uh, you know, maybe 300, still hilly, but you know, maybe 300 metres or whatever. Um, they're mm. producing some incredible wines down there, aren't they? Mm. But then they have the latitude effect being closer to the Antarctica. That, of course, makes a big difference as well. The further north you go, the closer to the equator, the more you depend on being closer to the mountains. And you depend on the snow that hopefully uh, falls on the mountain every year. There's been quite a drought for a, for a few years. Also, the Chileans have suffered quite a lot as well with not having enough snow falling on the, on the mountains. And if you don't have the snow, you don't get really the cold air coming down either, because the snow really makes sure that the the, the air that rolls down the mountain and comes down and cools the vineyards, that is, uh, that is also an effect of, of that snow-capped uh, snow tops of, of the mountains. But I think also back to your Chardonnay there, um, it's quite, uh, it's quite unique to have a vineyard planted back in 98. So when they bought this vineyard, this Chardonnay vineyard was already planted. So uh, a 1998 Chardonnay if I go back during early 2000s, Chardonnays from Argentina were first of all not from Uco Valley. They were in, from the warmer sites of, uh, of like eight, 900 meter um, in Mendoza. And they were quite tropical and didn't age at all well. And they were not especially attractive. So I think there's been an incredible boom of great quality Chardonnay uh, overall white wines in Argentina. But I think the, when it comes to, to Chardonnay, Hualtalari is, is uh, super, and I would say even world-class. You can put this, I mean, you, you, get the, you get the floral notes, you get, as you said, that, that um, stone fruit, you, you get the, the yellow fruit, but it's absolutely far from, from being tropical. It's much more ripe mm. citrus and lively and beautiful line of acidity. And then you get that mineral crunch on the finish that you realize it's all about having a very moderate uh, growing season. It hasn't been hot. Um, it's been growing with, you know, with that moderate temperature, longer hang time, maintaining acidity and, and just having a beautiful site. Yeah, and it's, uh, uh, as I said, that, that energy. And it's interesting, you talked about the kind of chalky character, uh, mm. too. I think it's, it's, it's really fascinating. I can't talk Argentina without talking about Cabernet Franc, because mm. um, 
uh, the, the first time I had a Cabernet Franc, which is, I think, my favourite grape variety. I, I love mm. the way it manifests itself in different ways, in different places. And the first time I had a Cabernet Franc uh, from Argentina, it was kind of like an epiphany, really. Um, yeah. it, uh, it's an incredible grape in Argentina, Cabernet Franc, isn't it? It is incredible. And the thing is, in the past, there was only Cabernet Franc planted for those that made that border blend. They always called it the border blend. Uh, but no one really dared to do it on their own. And the thing is, what I find very interesting in Argentina is that, first of all, with that sunlight intensity, you lose that what the Loire would struggle with uh, in cooler years, that, that little bit of that greenness that has been the talking point of why the, you know, the, the trend of overripeness and long hang time and the Cabernet and Cabernet Francs always needed to be bigger and bolder uh, and riper because they wanted to get rid of that DNA of the variety. But the thing is with the Argentina climate, it's dry enough and sun intensity enough, but still with a cool season, uh, cool enough to ripen it to perfection without making it too ripe, but also maintaining a bit of that DNA without having any greenness. And I have been so impressed with Cabernet Franc from year to year that, and I've also seen in the hectares planted, it's it's exploded. So if I go back six, seven years, it was probably not more than four, 500 hectares planted. And I'm sure it's way above like 1200 or something like that in hectares now. So it's growing, but it's not, it's not at the level of Malbec, of course, but, but there's a lot of producers that see that Cabernet Franc is definitely there. A, a very strong, uh, very strong variety. Yeah, I, I adore it. And uh, there are so many good examples. It's always yeah. a great uh, pleasure to uh, judge uh, that c uh, category if I'm lucky enough to do that. Um, which brings me neatly onto a sort of final question, because um, you've been uh, you know, intimately involved with um, Argentinian wines for a while. You've probably seen quite a lot change already. You've probably seen an evolution in the style. Um, mm. What um, What do you think uh, is next? What's your sort of prediction for uh, wines from Argentina? Well, I think in the years up to maybe 2013, uh, most producers had this recipe of picking late, even if they had very high altitude vineyards, they saw that as a fantastic opportunity to let the grapes hang even longer and longer and longer. And you've he heard me repeat this a few times that the trend all over the world, you know, that what we call the Parker era uh, with Roland winemaking and Parker points, uh, it was all down to to waiting and waiting and waiting because you will get such soft tannins and and beautiful richness of fruit. But the thing is with, with Malbec, it doesn't have that much tannin. Uh, so if you wait and wait and wait, the tannins will become very soft, but where is the ageability going to go? And I think that has been a, a bit of a mistake in the past that they have waited too long and then the wines don't uh, age very well. And with, 14, 15, 16, 17 vintages, they were all either cold and rainy or just cold. And what happened was such a great thing. I, I applaud this, the nature having taught the winemakers to back off a little bit. Um, they couldn't pick it as late as they wanted. Uh, and then they couldn't extract as much as they wanted. 
and then they couldn't age it in so much new oak. Plus that the financial world uh, gave them a bit of difficulties and politics as, as well. So they couldn't afford to buy all these new oak barrels, which was, I think, very good. So they went back to their own concrete tanks. They bought, when they bought something new, they bought concrete eggs or these big tulip formed uh, concrete vats, uh, unlined concrete, and they fermented it in it. They dared to throw a bit of whole bunches into, uh, into the fermentation, lifting the aromatics of the variety. Um, if I just talk Malbec and I think the whole, if we talk about Provence, for example, Everyone talks about the Garrigue character of Provence, beautiful. Also down in Languedoc, you will have the Garrigue. If you go to South Africa, you have the Feinbos character. If you go to Argentina, everyone has been afraid of being proud of what grows wild in the vineyards, which is wild rucola and wild thyme. As you go higher up in the Uca Valley, you will have these wild herbs growing and it smells beautiful. And by using um, a bit of stems in the fermentation, you elevate this characteristic and it brings more perfume. Plus that you cut the in between the layers of that rich, dense fruit and you put, it's like injecting a little bit of air between those millions of layers uh, in the wine and just brighten up the whole thing. And that I think has been a big change. And it's that also what it has done, uh, it has allowed the place to shine through so much more. Because in the past, we could generalize Malbec. Oh, it was like more Argentine Malbec. But today, uh, we can see much more focus on expressing the soil and the place. And the, the winemakers are starting to see that they, they have incredible terroirs. And before then, they weren't really sure what was under the level of, you know, when you dig a hole, you realize, oh my God, we have, we have spectacular soil type here they were never really interested in that 15 years ago you didn't see these these holes being dug up and and to be analyzed what type of soil do we really have so that has been a big big change and i see these cool vintages that we've had uh, and you know like recently there have been a, a lot of cool vintages and that has been so beneficial because um, i think this is the the whole thing they they've seen that it, malbec can be beautiful and also the other varieties as well, naturally, they can express place in a different way. And they are starting to become much more proud of having that diversity in their vineyards and daring to, to explore that. That, I think, is one of the biggest things. Mm, well, it's wonderful to taste it in the wines as well. And um, uh, these uh, Benberg... Uh, La Linterna uh, wines are in uh, some specialist um, retailers in the UK like Hedonism, um, Selfridges, I think, Nine Elms wines. Wow. So they uh, are well worth tracking down so that uh, anyone listening uh, can go on a, a micro terroir uh, journey uh, themselves. Um, it's been fascinating talking to you, uh, Madeline. Thank you very much for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thank you very much for inviting me. Superb. Thank you. <laughs> The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.
Well, if you're a regular listener, you'll know we try to theme our wine recommendations and spirits recommendations uh, very often as well uh, from the IWSC according to uh, that day's uh, content. And fairly obviously, the theme for this week is Argentina. There are plenty of medal winners to choose from, unsurprisingly. Let's begin with a couple of gold medal winners. Colome Autentico Malbec 2020 from Salta up in the north of the country, an altitude wine, if ever there was one. Um, I was fortunate uh, to visit uh, Salta and uh, Colome's home there around three years ago with its importer, Liberty Wines, an unforgettable experience. Um, You kind of get uh, a degree of um, altitude sickness just getting to the kind of heights we're talking about here, or you do if you're a a bit of a wimp like me. Um, This wine uh, thrives at that altitude, though, awarding it 95 points, giving it a gold medal. The judges said, dark and spicy, plump and rich, with hints of beetroot, blackberry and prunes. Structured tannins, adding framework to the fruit. Punchy with good balance and fruit expression. It can keep giving for many years. And I was banging on about uh, Cabernet Franc and my love for that particular variety, especially in Argentina. And Madeline uh, seemed to concur. Um, She's a fan too. So here's a a gold medal winner to prove uh, that point. Routini Single Vineyard Cabernet Franc 2017 from Gualtallery, the high altitude uh, sub-region of Mendoza that we were talking about uh, just now. Um, Awarding their medal, the judges, including Alastair Cooper, MW, who is a recent uh, guest talking Chile, of course, and also Master Sommelier Stefan Neumann, uh, along with Rebecca Palmer of Cornean Barrow. Uh, they said of this uh, particular wine, super pronounced and complex nose, showing coffee, mocha, cassis and spice. Red fruits and chocolate are added to the palate mix, which is velvety smooth, vibrant and long. This is a layered, fresh and uh, has a great future. Uh, joy in a glass, they said of this particular gold medal winning Cab Franc. And a trio of golds uh, from today's recommendations. Here's a Chardonnay, uh, Teresas de los Andes, uh, Grand Chardonnay 2020. This is also from uh, Gualtallery. Uh, You can see the effects of um, that uh, particular area's success on its uh, ratio for getting uh, top medals. Uh, The judges tasting note says this, From the first hint of vanilla custard perfume, this wine goes on to give layer upon layer of flavour, from the richness of brioche to the freshness of lime leaf and sweetness of cinnamon, well-balanced with a long finish. And we're going to stay in Gualtallery. Here's a wine that I enjoyed the other weekend, actually. Uh, Really lovely organic uh, expression of of Malbec. Domaine Bousquet, Gaia organic Malbec 2020, a silver medal winner, 90 points. Uh, Domaine Bousquet is an organic pioneer, actually, first certified organic in 2001, which was a a long time before um, others uh, necessarily went that way. Uh, The judging panel said intense sour red cherry, rowan berry, Uh, which I'm going to have to look up, I think. Uh, Damson fruit, which I definitely don't have to look up. Uh, Violets, plum and blueberry notes on the nose. Dry and vibrant palate with herbal notes, polished tannins and a balanced finish. 
And to round off for this episode, here's a success story from a budget retailer, Aldi, which uh, punches above its weight for wines uh, most of the time. Uh, this is Aldi Buenas Vides Cabernet Sauvignon 2019. Uh, this one's from Mendoza. It won a silver medal with 92 points. And the judges said, pronounced aromas of cassis, chocolate and cedar are joined on the palate by dark fruits and spice. Balanced and soft, with great intensity and an endless finish. My finish, you'll be glad to hear, is not endless. Um, here it is. Thank you to uh, Madeleine Stenreth, uh, MW, for uh, a truly fascinating, captivating chat. Um, do look out for those uh, Bemberg uh, La Lanterna wines, um, if you can, to explore those uh, different expressions of the varieties in different plots. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram or Twitter. And uh, I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, thank you for listening. And that's it for now. Goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.